Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Today, it's going to be a great day. I hope you've had a good day so far. It's a beautiful sunny day here in the Twin Cities area. Uh, the weather is really nice. And if you like summer, this is one of those days that you go, these are the ones we've waited for. It's been really nice. Today, I'm going to bring on uh, Doug Blair in just a minute. He's right from the Daily Signal. He is uh, a writer there and uh, hosts the podcast at the Daily Signal. And I always encourage people to head to dailysignal.com to check it out. And then Dr. Greg Borgon is going to show up, and we're going to talk about strategic fathering. It's going to be a great half hour. And then Todd Mullican is joining me in hour two as we talk about how to move from resentment to forgiveness in preparation for Forgiveness Day tomorrow, which is going to be a powerful day. And you're not going to want to miss any of tomorrow's broadcast. And I'm saying from start to finish, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., there's going to be a lot of the network shows that are going to focus on the subject of forgiveness and all the show shows, Carmen, Susie, mine, it's going to all be centered on forgiveness. So love to have you tune in to all of it. Doug Blair is a news producer for the Daily Signal and also co-host of the Daily Signal podcast. And he's nice enough to come on. Doug, welcome. Hey, Bill, how you doing? Good. You know, I've been thinking about you uh, off and on a lot in the last uh, couple of weeks and I know you're a sort of uh, a newer Christian, and, and I've always thought, well, I bet Doug wouldn't mind sharing part of his story, part of his faith journey with our listeners. Absolutely. No, I'd, I'd be happy to. I mean, I can start from the beginning. I, I would love the there. very beginning. No, let's go okay. to the very beginning. Absolutely. So I was uh, baptized by my parents. My, my mom is a Catholic, and my dad is a Lutheran. They're both from the East Coast. My mom comes from a very long family of Irish Catholics. Okay. Uh, and my dad is less religious, but still slightly involved in the Church. So I was baptized as a baby, but we really didn't do much in terms of religion at the very beginning. So I wasn't raised in a particular religious home, was never exposed to Christ, was never really exposed to Christianity. Uh, it wasn't until high school that I was first kind of given a chance to meet the Lord on that level. Um, I went to a Jesuit school in Portland, Oregon, and was sort of exposed to some of these things that I had never been talked to about. I, I was like, wow, this is really interesting. This is really cool. Uh, I'm going to try it out. But for some reason, I guess the Lord decided that that wasn't the right time for me to come into the faith. And it, 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 my, my heart was sort of hardened, and I, I really didn't know what I was doing in terms of that. So I kind of went away from faith for a little while. Um, time went on, and I, I sort of was religious on and off until recently, I would say maybe about six or seven months ago, I really recognized that something was missing in my life, that there was this hole in my, whole, in my heart and my soul that just I couldn't fill with anything. I have mm -hmm. a wonderful girlfriend who's a Catholic. She's very, very kind to me. She's wonderful, but she wasn't filling this hole. I had a good job. I have great friends and colleagues at the Heritage Foundation, but that wasn't filling the hole. And I was looking around for things until a good friend of mine who uh, sort of spoke to me, and he, he said, you know, Doug, I noticed that you're not, you know, as happy as I think you should be. And, <laughs> you know, 
would you be willing to read the Bible with me? Would you be willing to do a study with me? And I said, yeah, why? Well, it couldn't hurt. You know, it couldn't be, you know, anything too bad. And it just really <laughs> resonated. That was it. I, would, I had found that thing that filled the hole. I had found Christ. I had found the Lord. And he was there to, to pick me up to say, now is the time, Doug. Now is the time that I'm going to bring you into the fold, that I'm going to, you know, guide you. You're going to understand what a relationship with me means. And I haven't looked back since. Oh, fantastic. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And, uh, you know, I know, Doug, there's a lot of uh, people that are in really good churches, uh, Catholic, Lutheran, all kinds of churches where they're hearing the gospel, they're hearing uh, the name of Christ, they are understanding uh, the personal relationship with him. And I, I think there's going to always be some people that are going to go, oh, Doug, it's sorry, I'm sorry you missed it in your upbringing because you, you missed a lot. Um, but I'm so glad you came to the understanding that there was something missing, and Jesus was the answer. Absolutely. I think that that's such an important part of it, too, is that, you know, when somebody is exposed to Christ and exposed to the Lord, it's sometimes difficult to really understand and kind of internalize what that means. But then when you recognize what life is like without him, when you recognize that what you're missing out when you don't have that relationship, it becomes a lot more clear. Because you could go your entire life you know, feeling like you're doing okay. But then Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, when you reflect and you look back on your existence without having Christ in your life, you you think to yourself, oh my gosh, how could I have ever existed without this presence in my life without (laughs) being able to understand this? Yeah, you're talking like a true believer there, Doug. So I love love (laughs) that story. And thank you for sharing it with not only me, but the listeners as well. Because, uh, yeah, whenever we ask for uh, a guest to come on the show that's going to have uh, news stories. Um, it's always uh, very comforting when listeners get to know the messenger a little bit better. So that's always helpful. Now, I know at the Daily Signal you wrote an article now that um, abortion is uh, moves back to the American people to decide. It's now uh, going to be decided by the states. Uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, women that are still going to need care. What is the plan? That's a great question, because it is important to recognize that this doesn't just get rid of abortion. I think a lot of people will say uh, certain things will be, oh, you know, this will be illegal now, which isn't exactly true. As you mentioned, this goes back to the American people as a whole to decide, both in the states, but then also in Congress, right? You know, the the representatives of the people can make a decision on whether this gets made illegal or illegal at the federal level. So we're starting to look into that. But yeah, I think one of the things that most people should be aware of is that there are resources out in the states and in various cities and municipalities that are designed for women who are going through an unexpected pregnancy. There are things called crisis uh, pregnancy resource centers that provide low cost or free care for women who are expecting and women who have just delivered. So there are resources out there, and I highly encourage listeners who maybe know somebody in their life who's maybe going through something like this to reach out and to look to some of those resources to see, hey, might, be, might you be able to help my friend or might you be able to help this person that I know in my life go through this very, very difficult and sometimes scary process. Mm-hmm. And there's over 3,000 pregnancy care centers, isn't there, in the U.S., roughly? Yeah, there are quite a few. So, again, I I think it's very important to recognize that these resources do exist and that people can support them and make sure that, you know, abortion isn't the only answer, that there are people who are able to help you and make those decisions to kind of go and and assist with with an unexpected pregnancy. There's so many, right? 3,000, as you mentioned, is just the start. I think we'll start to see more of those pop up uh, as time goes on. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Doug Blair is my guest. He's at thedailysignal.com. Uh, Doug, the Supreme Court uh, ruled in favor of the Washington State football coach Joe Kennedy and his right to prayer. I'd love for you to talk about that story. Absolutely. So Coach Kennedy is a coach from, as you mentioned, Washington State, uh, who used to pray on the 50-yard mar- uh, line on the football court, on the football field, excuse me. That, that shows I don't really know my sports <laughs> very well. Uh, but he used to pray, and he came under fire for doing that. So um, the school board said that that was unacceptable, that he wasn't allowed to do it. Uh, the coach said that it was his covenant with God that he would make these prayers, and it seemed like the majority of his team was on board with it. But, you know, there were some concerns about the separation of church and state, all of these other concerns about the First Amendment. Uh, so he was not allowed to come back. He was let go. Um, and the court uh, basically said that, no, you can't do that. You can't tell him that he can't express his religious rights. Uh, on the football field because, you know, First Amendment allows you to express your religion. Um, It it does seem like this is probably not the last we're going to hear of these types of topics. I think that this is something that's going to become increasingly contentious as, uh, you know, religion sort of starts to come under fire in America these days. But for this particular case, it seems like the justices decided that his religious liberty outweighed the concerns of the school board. Mm -hmm. Doug, I'm not aware of all the facts surrounding this case, but I thought I heard that this coach, Joe Kennedy, was praying silently at the 50-yard line after the game was over, and players from both teams would join along with uh, fans from the stands. Correct. So again, that's I think the most important part about it. There was trying the 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 opposition was trying to make the argument that this was in, invasive, that people were being forced into doing this, that certain people might be uncomfortable uh, with these types of prayers. But basically, he was just doing this on his own, right? As as you mentioned, he was doing it silently, and people, if they wanted to join him, were able to do so. So I think that was probably where the justices lined up, where they said, you know, he's not harming anybody by doing this. He's not forcing any of his team to do these things. These are people willingly joining him in this prayer. And and you can't just tell somebody that you can't do that if it makes you uncomfortable or if you feel that, like, religion doesn't have a place. He's doing it on his own, and people are joining him of their own volition. This isn't a forced issue. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, Clarence Thomas, the justice, um, was suggesting, I think, and it, maybe you can help me with this story, that there is a, a, they're reconsidering a, a prior ruling, which would make it more difficult to sue media organizations. Absolutely. So Clarence Thomas has sort of as in in his role as one of the more conservative members of the court uh, has sort of tried to push the court in the direction of, look, some of these decisions were wrongly decided. Some of the decisions were were bad. Right. We can we can look at them and like Roe v. Wade was it was a badly decided decision. That's what Alito even said in his uh, in his opinion. But Clarence Thomas basically has said that there was a decision back in 1964 uh, called New York versus Sullivan, I believe was the name of the case, uh, that said it was it, you had to prove that the, the libel or the defamation that was being committed by a news source was done intentionally, right? It was actually malicious, as opposed to just being untrue. You could obviously argue that a, me- a media source uh, got their facts wrong, or that they you know, were uninformed, or that they didn't know any better. So you had to prove that it was done intentionally, maliciously. Um, I think Clarence Thomas believes that in the modern age, there are a lot of cases where a news source is trying to, let's say, hide behind or use this case as a shield when they'll make claims about a certain individual or an organization that are 
false at worst and defamatory. So I guess false at best, defamatory at worst. Mm -hmm. Uh, The specific case that Thomas was referring to was something called Coral Ridge Ministries Media, and they filed a case against the SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center, over their inclusion on a list of hate groups. Uh, This apparently lost in business with Amazon, and they tried to sue. The Supreme Court, with the exception of Thomas, basically said that this didn't follow, this didn't pass muster to get past New York versus Sullivan. Uh, but th- Thomas disagreed. So we might be seeing more on that in the near future. It would be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Douglas Blair is my guest. He is a writer at the DailySignal.com. You can head over there and uh, learn more about him, as well as the co-host of the podcast at the Daily Signal. We'll take a break and come back. If you have any questions for Doug Blair, let me know what they are. You can text them over to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. show if you just joined me uh nice to have you with us it's uh about 18 minutes after the hour and doug blair is my guest he is from the daily signal he's a writer there and also the host of the podcast and doug i i have a very a weak stomach when it comes to war stories and war mm. news so i'm going to kind of defer to you i i've heard some things and they're just so hard to hear about what's going on right now in ukraine maybe you could uh, bring us up to date with what's happening I mean, yeah, I think you have an absolutely accurate assumption about how to view the war in Ukraine. It's just terrible. Uh, we've heard reports that Russia has attacked a shopping center mm-hmm. in, in a city in Ukraine. There are m- many, many casualties, many dead. Um, but that just sort of indicates the way that this war is going. I think that a lot of people kind of, when this first started, saw those images on their TV and were rightfully horrified. But as things have gone on, as we've seen issues kind of pop up domestically, it can be very easy to forget that this is still an ongoing campaign. But yes, I think the basic level of what's going on in Ukraine right now is Russia is still uh, being aggressive and they are still taking out targets, mostly with civilians uh, in Ukraine. They are still on the war path to sort of conquer the country. I know that they'll say this is a military operation. They'll say that there's uh, some special reason why they're in the country that doesn't involve conquest. But as we can see from the photos, as we can see from what is actually happening on, on our screens and all of these things, this is a war. This is what Russia is trying to do. They're trying to take Ukraine, and they don't really seem to care if they have to you know, kill a few civilians to get that done. Yeah, and I, I guess I did see some of the stories on the capture and the torture and some of those other things. I, I just hate those words, and I can't imagine the inhumanity and the evil that's going on. It's just I, I get on my knees and pray because that's about all I can do, and I try to keep abreast of what's going on. But the stories are just—they're too difficult to read. Absolutely, but we are seeing some positive things happen. So as the U.S. has basically been in. Uh, imposing sanctions on Russia as a result of their war crimes and their their 
criminal activity in Ukraine. So we just imposed a couple of new sanctions today. Those are some sanctions on uh, 70 Russian defense-related folks. So it's specifically targeting their military apparatus, people involved in the military. So the U.S. is responding to this, which is a positive. We want to make sure that Russia does understand that there are consequences for this unlawful attack of a sovereign nation like Ukraine. Uh, but, yeah, this is this is news that we will continue to see. And, of course, the Daily Signal will keep uh, the world updated on mm-hmm. what's going on. But, yeah, as you, you, you said, it's absolutely tragic. I yeah. pray about it every night, and, and I just wish the best for these people. So, Doug, what went on at the G7 summit? What, what are some of the walkaways that we can uh, get from that? I, I think I heard that uh, Boris Johnson was sort of suggesting that we should turn our focus away from climate change and start focusing on world hunger, which is going to be a devastating problem. Absolutely. And world hunger absolutely is a problem. It's a problem that we don't talk nearly about. Uh, it, it, it affects hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people every day where they are not able to get enough food to feed themselves. Uh, but there are other things that were very interesting as well. So there, geopolitically, there is something called the Belt and Road Initiative, which is China's attempt to sort of neo-colonially uh, conquer a lot of these nations in Africa, in Southeast Asia, to sort of flex its muscle economically on the world stage. And a lot of the concern that we've been seeing from a lot of Western countries, including the U.S., the U.K., France, and our allies in Europe, has been how to best counter that. So there was a $600 billion plan that was proposed to rival that initiative that would sort of help uh, you know, the Western nations compete with China on that front where they would be able to provide support to some of these nations that require aid like infrastructure, like agriculture, like uh, economic development, where they would be able to push back against Chinese influence, which is going to have consequences in the near future if we don't deal with that. China wants to become a world power, and they're going to use the Belt and Road Initiative uh, to sort of supplement that and, and to get people on their side. Mm-hmm. So, Doug, with uh, inflation being what it is, with it appears it's not going to let up for a while, and that is going to be problematic, of course, uh, around election time for sure. But what about um, this gas tax, this small relief we're going to try to get? I don't know if it's been implemented yet. Um, what do you know about that, and is that a good idea? Um, so, yeah, one of the things that the Biden administration is trying to do to tamp down on these ideas and these, these you know, questions about what they're doing is to implement what is called a federal gas tax holiday. The gas tax is something that gets added on to each purchase of gasoline at the gas station. It's something that everybody pays. Uh, but realistically, it is not actually that big of a deal. Now, as somebody who is not a huge fan of taxes, I do like the idea of the tax holiday. But the problem is it doesn't actually attack the issue that is de- that is really the big problem uh, with gas prices right now, which is that supply is far lower than demand, right? This is a very basic economic tenet. If there is more demand than there is supply, the prices go up. So, again, it's not an issue that there's taxes. It's just not enough gas. So here at the Heritage Foundation at the Daily Signal, we've basically been pushing uh, for policy that would allow energy independence – from a lot of these different countries that are that are kind of strangling uh, our, our energy right now, right? Obviously, the president is incorrect when he says that the main problem with gas prices right now is Putin. He uses this term, the Putin price hike, which is not entirely accurate, but he's not wrong that there are certain aspects of the war in Ukraine and the fact that Russia is a, is a hostile nation right now that is making gas prices go higher. Far more impactful, however, would be if he was to open up American energy. Uh, that includes uh, mining, fracking, and drilling on federal land that has oil on it, and then allowing oil and gas companies to produce more 
of the resource that we definitely need right now. So, yeah, this gas tax, it's, it will help slightly. I think that the statistics that we've been given here at the Heritage Foundation are about 18 cents or 24 cents, depending on where you are in the country. But it wouldn't actually do much of a dent in really getting the, the prices at the pump down. Doug Blair is my guest, a writer at thedailysignal.com, also co-host of the podcast. Doug, I know we've got a, a one significant decision still to come from the Supreme Court, and I, I think it's the West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency. Do you know about Correct. that, and can you share uh, what you know about that? Yes. So this is a case that has pretty strong implications for what's called the Chevron Doctrine. So now, normally how it works right now is that when an executive agency such as the EPA, such as the FDA, such as the CDC, has an opinion on something, they are basically allowed to govern how the laws and the rules are enacted on the level of uh, public policy, right? Normally, this is how the Constitution is set up. Those, those laws and those rules and those regulations should go through Congress. They should go through the legislature, which is directly, uh, which is directly accountable to the people, right? You want your laws to be directly accountable to people that you voted for. With Chevron, however, that basically means that the executive agency, which is some unelected bureaucrat, is now making the rules about these things. We saw this a lot in my home state of Oregon with water rights, right? So WOTUS, or Waters of the United States, the act that was sort of uh, protecting waterways, was being abused by the EPA to say that anything from a stream to a river was considered a navigable waterway and therefore was contingent on federal restrictions around water usage. Uh, So basically this decision uh, in this case, and what we're sort of hoping for is that this decision will remove that Chevron deference that the executive agencies are able to make these types of decisions, and it would put the onus back on Congress to start passing laws that are actually applicable and accountable to the American people. If they don't like the law, they can, they can unelect these people, they can vote them out of office, and then replace them with people that will pass laws that they want. Mm-hmm. Doug, what did you and some of your other colleagues at the Heritage Foundation uh, think when some of the new voter registration data arrived, and it discovered that there are um, more than one million American voters that have switched parties. Um, yeah, so the, the what you're talking about is that a, a new report came out that over a million Americans had switched registration from the Democratic Party or from non-affiliated to the Republican Party. Uh, I think what that indicates is that the American people are getting really tired of what is happening with the Democrats right now. If they look at the Democrats, they see uh, these gas prices that we've been talking about. They're seeing this regulatory craziness that's coming out of the EPA case in in West Virginia. Uh, They're seeing all of these problems with finding baby formulas we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks, right? They just see failure after failure after failure, and then they can lay them very squarely at the feet of President Biden and his administration. Uh, I think that this indicates that people more likely than not are going to start voting differently uh, and that that's sort of, you know, they just want a different they want a different form of government. They want government that will actually do things for them. They want government that's not going to be focused on things like wokeism, things like, you know, critical race theory, these things that don't actually matter. They want a government that focuses on getting food on the table, that makes gas affordable, that makes these bread and butter issues their priority. Uh, and they just don't see that as the Democrats right now. They see that as the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Doug, thanks so much for coming on the show, and thank you especially for sharing uh, your your faith, uh, part of your faith testimony. That was really a delight to hear, and I had several listeners uh, chime in and say, I'm glad, I'm glad Doug's a believer. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank yeah. you so much for letting me share it. I really you appreciate bet. it. It was a delight.
and have a great 4th of July weekend. Absolutely. Have a great 4th. You bet. Doug Blair's been my guest. DailySignal.com. You can learn more about Doug there. Take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about strategic fathering with uh, our good friend, Dr. Greg Borgon from heartofawarriorministries.org. Be right back. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Oh, you dads out there, you're you're so important. You fathers, <laughs> we love you fathers, and we love who you are and how you uh, do your fathering, and what a significant difference you're making in the lives of your kids. Today Absolutely. We're gonna, today we're going to talk about strategic fathering with uh, Dr. Greg Borgon, and he's at heart of a warriorministries.org, which trains men to live lives of integrity, authenticity, courage, and valor. Greg, welcome back. It's good to be back. Yeah. So let's talk about how important fathering is. Well, let's kind of set the stage a little bit yet. So over the last several months, as I was preparing a message that I was going to deliver in St. Louis on Father's Day about fathering, I just kept getting more and more uh, frustrated. Of course, the Christian word for for, for anger is frustrated. (laughs) about what I was seeing and reading and hearing in uh, secular contexts. You know, I, I, I guess, Bill, I, I've, grown, I've, I've grown increasingly alarmed at the, the diminishment, the social diminishment of the role of the father in the family. Matter of fact, pundits abound declaring, you know, disparaging remarks as to the need of fathers, much less male influence in the home. Uh, the disingenuous rhetoric is is heard on many news outlets and talk shows disparaging men in general and discounting the role of fathers in the home. Many of these comments suggest fathers are not needed at all. The increasing chorus of negative remarks are becoming louder and more inflammatory. AOC, which is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, said recently that masculinity is patriarchal and represents white supremacism. <laughs> And uh, and then when I was there in St. Louis at Elevation Church, the, the day I actually was to speak, I decided to visit um, our own home paper here, the Star Tribune, to see what they said about Father's Day. And what I encountered was a large spread on 50 years of celebration of gay rights and two tiny articles embedded into the paper, one on the sports page of all places, about fathers. Mm. That was it. Well, so statistics abound uh, regarding the consequences, of course, of the absence of a father in a home. I bet this is not going to be good news. No, it's not. Let's it's hear not. a few. So the National Father Initiative has been collecting this data uh, on the consequences of absentee fathers. So children raised in a father-absent home are affected in uh, the following ways. And I'll just uh, share these very quickly. Four times greater risk of poverty, more likely to have behavioral problems, two times greater risk of infant mortality, more likely to go to prison, more likely to commit crimes, seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen if you're a girl, more likely to face abuse and neglect, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, two times more likely to suffer obesity, two times more likely to drop out of school. 
And we want to start by just saying this breaks our heart. Oh, absolutely. And there's people listening right now that are in a situation they don't want to be in. Yeah. They don't want to be a single parent or absent from their kids' lives. It's killing them. And thanks good, thank goodness in, in homes that are single parent and women who are trying to raise their children, doing the very best they can, um, I honor them for that. I do too. Well, Heart of a Warrior Ministry, uh, as you pointed out, Bill, trains men to live lives of integrity, authenticity, courage, and valor. So we met uh, with prisoners at Lionel Lakes for four years, uh, the correctional facility there. Most of the prisoners had taken somebody's life. Most had been involved in drugs of one sort or another, and most have lived in homes without a father. Mm. Uh, and that was almost 90%. Wow. Bill. And the, the statistic across the country in all prisons is that it's 80 to 85% that uh, grew up in a fatherless home. So in some circles in our society, though, a father is deemed unnecessary. In other words, the role of the father is, is, is roundly criticized. So, But the point is this. Our role as male influence, as a father, as a grandfather, uh, is absolutely clear. We're to stand in bold relief against the backdrop of our culture, prepared to defend our beliefs and values, to model godliness beginning in our homes, Bill. Amen. Amen to that. Fatherhood um, actually was established in the Garden of Eden when God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. As one writer put it, providing sperm for conception is merely the beginning of God's expectations for fathers. Sperm can make a child, but it takes a real man to be a father. Yeah, I agree. Some men who want to be good fathers have little understanding of what godly fatherhood looks like, and they're certainly not going to get any great cues from our society and our culture right now. And they may not have had any experience in witnessing what a good father looks like, so how could they turn around and become one? And and so they'll end up, they're going to model themselves after somebody, so and oftentimes it's going to be a negative influence uh, in their life. But in God's economy, Bill, the role of the father is absolutely critical. Engaged, healthy fathers are important to the spiritual, emotional, intellectual, and physical well-being uh, and health of, a child, uh, of children. So the positive influence of the father in the home can't be underestimated. There are you know, as, I, as I've traveled the land um, and dealing with men and, and uh, speaking in a number of contexts and consulting in a number of contexts, um, having conversations, lengthy conversations about the subject, um, I came to the conclusion there are essentially um, three types of fathers, Bill. Uh, the first father is the one we're most familiar with, the absent or toxic father. They're apathetic, they're self-centered, it's all about them and their needs, they're oblivious, they're emotionally unattached. Often the only time an absent father engages his children is to criticize them. And uh, so, but when you keep criticizing your children, they don't stop loving you, they stop loving themselves. Mm. Think about that for a minute. Yeah. That's tough. That's tough to hear. In the end, absent fathers end up lonely and alone because they've abandoned anybody that cared about them and, in particular, their families. The second type is an emotional father, a rather immature father. Uh, At all the dance recitals and or hockey games, is a kid in adult clothes uh, would rather be a friend to their children um, than an adult Mm -hmm. or a father to them. 
and they just want to get along. And so they often become the uh, child again in in adult clothes. Uh, In the end, what may happen is probably when that child reaches between the ages of 23 to 25, they're going to come to their father and they're going to say, Dad, I thought it was pretty cool when I was younger that you were just like my friends and joked with my friends and went places with my friends and me. But you know what I really needed, Dad, was a father, not a friend. That's what they're going to find mm-hmm. out. So finally, the one we'll talk about very briefly today is the strategic godly father, the third type. Now, these fathers, if you had to go ahead and synopsize it quickly, you'd say they're observant, they're intentional, they're engaged, and they're situationally responsive. So what in is, other words, what they're active. What does situationally responsive mean? It means that they adjust the way in which they lead their family, especially their children, based on um, the the uh, whether or not they're able or unable to carry out tasks or whatever. They'll adjust it. In other words, they'll go from director to coach to partner and then maybe just to advisor, depending on the confidence and confidence sure. that the child has uh, uh, given a certain task they've been assigned or whatever. So they'll respond situationally. They won't use their default leadership style, which may be a director always telling somebody to do something. Um, they'll adjust it to mm-hmm. accommodate the needs of the child. So, Greg, let me ask you this. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. So what does a strategic father look like? I mean, what what characteristics does he possess and maybe what qualities does he have? Yeah. Let me share with you at least four that I think are pretty dominant, Bill. First one is uh, a strategic father is child-centered. The scripture says in Proverbs 22, 6, train a child in the way he or she should go, and when they are old, they will not turn from it. Now, what's interesting about that powerful passage is it doesn't mean train up a child in the way you think as a parent they should go. And oftentimes, one of the biggest mistakes fathers make is trying to live vicariously through their children because they were unsuccessful in some particular endeavor, and they're they're bound to ensure that their child is going to reach the pinnacle they never reached, or they'll have them accommodate or assume a role or a job or a vocation just like they did. So this passage really speaks about train up a child in the way they should go. In other words, the way in which God has wired that child. Mm-hmm. So in order to do that, you need to know their world. Yeah. But Greg, just briefly talk about the people that did train a child in the way they should go. And they they have turned from it. There's there's heartbroken people right now listening. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, we have responsibility built to our children, but we can't take responsibility for them. In other words, we can be responsible to train them up in the way that they should go. What they do with that is between them and God. So consequently, it's possible for two children to be raised in the same home with the same kind of love, the same kind of attention of a strategic father, and one make decisions that are dishonoring to God and mm-hmm. go off on a tangent, and another one, um, you know, end up turning out the way that they hope that child would turn out. Right. But it's a decision that the child makes that's a hard thing for a parent to grasp and understand because we want to make sure, we want to take responsibility for our children. There's where the disappointment comes yeah. in. Yeah, because I'm sure that verse is painful for many. Oh, well, yeah. I did train my child in the way he should go, and today, Look what he's, happened. Not, today yeah. he's not going that way. Yeah, it's the decision that they've made, and they're responsible to God for it. But yeah. what we have to take responsibility for, Bill, is ourselves as parents. What did we do 
to help give them the kind of guardrails they needed for life. Okay. So, so know their world, know their interests, their friends, their trends, their activities. When Debbie and I raised our four grandsons and, and every one of them, we told them, be careful who you uh, choose as a friend because you'll ultimately become like them. So it's being aware of that, not being absent or not being uh, oblivious to what's going on, but what are their interests? Who are their friends? What are the trends do you see in their life in terms of their behavior? What activities are they involved in? You also need to understand their personality type. For instance, their gifts, their talents, their aptitudes and perspectives. Now, the Myers-Briggs, the last letter is a J or a P. A J means judging, a P means perceptive. But what it actually is talking about, J's normally like to make a decision. As soon as they got enough information, they want to pull the trigger. P's want to keep their options open. Well, you might be a J as a father, and your child is a P. Mm-hmm. So they want to keep their options open. They want to explore a little more. But you, sometimes fathers who are not uh, aware of their children and their temperament will uh, assume that they should be making the decision and and sometimes will be critical of them. But keep in mind whether you're a J or a P, uh, P's need J's to make decisions. J need P's because J's make hasty decisions sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it's known those personality temperaments. So that means you have to be aware and observant and present. So the other thing is understanding their learning style. In other words, they may be a visual learner. Uh, For instance, they may end up getting a lot from what they read. Um, They may be or what they see. They may be an auditory learner. They're constantly listening to various inputs They may be an experiential learner. They try different things. They may be an independent learner. Mm -hmm. So uh, being aware of what their learning style will help you cross over the bridge to connect with your child just by knowing how they learn most effectively. And, And just as we talked about a few seconds ago, what their personality temperament is. Because the best way to communicate with a child is to communicate in a way in which they're going to hear and they're going to understand. So that's important. So we must do everything we can to help our loved ones navigate this difficult terrain of life by engaging in, you know, the calibration of their internal compass. So it points to true north, which is Jesus Christ, so they won't lose their way. Mm-hmm. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. We're talking about strategic fathering, and you can learn more about Greg at heartofawarrior.org. It's a great ministry. And we're going to take a break and be back. We'll continue our discussion on strategic fathering. I hope this is an encouragement to you because good dads are pretty important. Uh, They're not important. They're essential. All right, we'll be right back. get their own walk-up music, and that's <laughs> right from Gladiator. Yeah, you betcha. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. We're talking about uh, qualities of a strategic father and how important uh, strategic fathering is. All right. Well, let's let's pick it up where we left off. We said that a strategic father is child-centered. Um, 
it's it's for that reason, Bill, that um, I actually tried to be a strategic influence on my my grandsons that lived in our home. They're all in their 20s now, uh, with the exception of one who just turned 18. But I gave them values um, because I knew that they were going to be making decisions in this world and they would need wisdom. I wanted to give them biblical values. And so I gave them to them. I gave, uh, you know, Braden strength and honor, Kieran courage and valor, Galen goodness and integrity, Lachlan truth and wisdom, and and Derek, my uh, grandson, peace and justice, and to Lisa, my granddaughter, love and joy. And, now, let me interrupt just for a second yeah. because this is how you would address them. Yeah. Often. Excellent. Instead of using their name, you would say, hello, love and joy. Yeah, I'd actually say, well, it, it, you know, Braden, just the other day, he, well, actually, when I was in that, that service preaching, just getting ready to preach in St. Louis, I got a text from him. The first thing he said is, strength and honor, Papa. Wow. And then talked about how much I had meant in his life. You know, I yeah. choked up. Don't, even don't get me started because yeah. we'll both be stopped, yeah, sobbing, that's and right. that's no good. I've yeah, but it was a way to, to greet each other, and we still do it to this day. But, but there was a, always that teachable moment I was looking for to have a transition from just being a crazy way in which Grandpa and Papa greeted them to actually meaning something in their life. And so today, as they're adults, I ask them occasionally, I said, so what have you done that um, was honorable and that took strength, Braden, or that took courage and valor, or they'll they'll offer it up to me. Nice. So that's being strategic. But it's part of their identity. Yeah, it is Bestowed now. on them by Grandpa. Yeah, and even their friends, when they find out about it, they, they ask Galen, for instance, recently, do you think he bestows some on me? <laughs> but, but you, you know, behind that kind of whimsical comment is this desire that wells up in every child to know that, there has there's focus to their life. Mm-hmm. So the second uh, characteristic or quality of a strategic father, I think, Bill, is a strategic father is protective. It says in First Timothy five eight. I just got to say parenthetically, the one reason I love scripture is it just doesn't beat around the bush. So listen to this carefully, folks. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. <laughs> Pretty blunt. Yeah. Pretty blunt. Let's get to the point. So men have been created, I believe, Bill, and you've heard me talk about this on your show in the past for three primary purposes, a cause to die for, a challenge to embrace, and, and loved ones to protect. And that's embedded in us. Every man I know wants to be a part of something larger than himself, to know his life matters. Every man I know needs to be challenged regularly, even though they'll whine about the challenge. Every man I know has got a built-in need to protect those who are their loved ones. And for the unmarried, it's the unwanted, the uncared for, the unloved, the underrepresented, the marginalized, the widow, the abandoned child. So the whole idea is is that we are wired this way by God uh, before we ever came to be. And also what we need to understand that a strategic father, to be protective, provides a cocoon of protection through uh, what the Bible calls unconditional love. Most of the time, um, what you'll find is that men's love for their children or their spouses is conditional. I love you if, or I love you because, instead of what Scripture calls us for, is I love you regardless. Mm, I love you, period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the idea is is that it's it's 1 Corinthians 13, 4, 7, 4 through 7 or 4 through 8 uh, that talks about unconditional love. <laughs> One of the frustrations I have is that that passage has been relegated to weddings, and that's where it stays, <laughs> Right. what love is, right? But it's much larger than that. For instance, the definition of this, uh, there are six words in, in the uh, Greek words that describe love in the New Testament. And this one's called agape. It's action-oriented. It's other-oriented. It's not emotionally based. 
And it really is the unconditional regard for the welfare and well-being of another individual, even if they're unlikable. Mm. And when you practice that kind of love, which is the only love we're commanded to do by God, is you'll find something lovable in them. Have you ever been unlikable, Greg? <laughs> Ask because... my wife. <laughs> of 53 years, she'll yeah. tell you. Because <laughs> if you need to learn from the master, let me know. I'll, I'll offer a half-day seminar. Oh, my word. With box lunch. <laughs> With box lunch. I like that. Yeah. When you look at this passage, Bill, about unconditional love, you find out there's seven things it always is, and there's eight things it's never. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the passage, 1 Corinthians 13, beginning with verse 4, here's what it is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. That should mark a strategic father's um, guideline. Mm-hmm. What it isn't. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it does not delight in evil. That's unconditional love. Mm -hmm. Action-oriented, others-oriented. Well, the third quality um, of a strategic father is they're engaged. Fathers, it says in Ephesians 6.4, do not exasperate your children, bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So... I had many parents express the following sentiment. I wish I had been given an instruction manual with the birth of my child. The fact is we have. It's it's the Bible. But when we talk, as we briefly alluded to at the beginning, about strategic or about uh, situational engagement, it's being observant of your child and finding out a task that you give them, what is their degree of confidence in their competence, and then adjust in your leadership style uh, to accommodate that, to go from a sage on the stage, in other words, to a guide by the side as they gain confidence and competence in a task. But when they have none, then you need to be a director. You need to tell uh, uh, them. When when they start to gain a little bit of confidence but still lack confidence, you need to explain as a coach. And when you go ahead and when they have some increased confidence and they gain some confidence, you need to come alongside of them now as a guide by the side. And then finally, you need to go ahead and mentor them when it's ready, when it's ready to be delegated to them. Finally, the fourth uh, uh, quality of a strategic father is a model for physical training. It says in First Corinthians, First Timothy four eight, is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So, the greatest gift that you can give your wife and your children is a godly life, a life well lived. Not a perfect life, but a life in the process of becoming and not really having arrived. A life of focus, intentionality, and purpose. A life that will be will bring glory and honor to God, not dishonor and shame, which means you have to be informed by God's word. You have to be obedient. Obedience always produces strength. Disobedience will always produce weakness. So being a godly father is absolutely critical. So let me just give you a, a comment that I found to be relevant uh, men, you need to understand this. Nobody really cares what you have to say. I don't want you to hear me. Nobody cares what you have to say until they observe how you live. And if you live a life of integrity and honor under God's authority, people and your children in particular will ultimately want to hear what you have to say. Why? Because they cannot get past a life well lived. Make no mistake about it. Regardless of the age of your children, they're watching you. Yeah, no kidding. And that's even if they disagree with you. Yeah. They're still going to admire and... Sure they are. 
Yeah, yeah and, and they'll compartmentalize certain aspects of your relationship, but they're going to watch you. They're looking for consistency, coherence, and congruence in your life. Mm-hmm. We know the Bible says that you have everything you need to live a life of godliness. Yeah, we're, we're without quick. excuse. Yeah. We have no excuse. We might have a reason why we're not being godly, but it isn't a legitimate excuse because God's given us everything we need, yeah. it says. And Greg, I always love that you, you bring this up on the show. Godliness, however, is more caught than taught. Your yeah. children learn from uh, what you do, uh, more of what you do than what you say. So uh, they are watching. So I appreciate that again. Yeah. It's, it, and as a matter of fact, you don't have to be perfect. And they're not looking for perfect fathers. They're looking for honest, godly fathers who also acknowledge their mistakes. Mm-hmm. And that's important. So those four qualities, again, Bill, uh, in my view, a strategic father needs to be child-centered. They need to be protective. They need to be engaged. And they need to be a model for their children. They also have to see the father love their mother, though, too. Where does oh, that fit yeah. in? Yeah, absolutely. How they honor and cherish their mother. Um, and, and keep in mind, oftentimes children look for a spouse in the image of their father or their mother in, in particular. So how that father treats their mother uh, is going to be picked up by that child. Unless you want them to mimic that behavior, you better watch that behavior. Mm-hmm. So that's important to understand. Cherished, loved, honored. Yeah. Great segment. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for putting this together and reminding us all how important fatherhood is and how to be a strategic father. This has been really helpful. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, Todd Mulliken is going to join me for the hour. We're going to discuss how you go from maybe feeling resentment to forgiveness as we get ready to uh, kick off our full day of forgiveness, which is happening tomorrow And if you uh, are just hearing about this now, most of tomorrow's program will be on the subject of forgiveness. We've been talking about it all month, and tomorrow is the day. We've got some powerful programs ahead. You're not going to want to miss a minute of tomorrow's programs. We will take a break and be back with Todd Mullican in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.